glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67. <clears throat> Let me just give a little bit of background before we read verse 67. Luke 1 is the account of the giving of Zacharias uh, to uh, of John the Baptist to Zacharias and Elizabeth. You remember they were aged and could not have children. Elizabeth was barren and could not bear. And the angel Gabriel came and told Zacharias that his prayers had been heard and his wife would have a child. I would imagine he had a little bit of difficulty. We know he did with God's timing. He had prayed for a long time for his wife to have a child. Can you imagine being 75, 80, 85 years old and find out your wife's going to have a baby? Um, I think that was probably, I know it was not expected, but yet it gave him great rejoicing once he believed God. You'll remember that because he did not initially believe the Lord because of his age, uh, the angel Gabriel had communicated this, and he said, how will I know this? I'm paraphrasing. And he said, I'm the angel Gabriel, basically. What what else do you need? Uh, I'm sent to you with a message from God. And so then the sign that this would happen is John, or Zacharias lost his ability to speak until the baby was born. He was dumb uh, and couldn't speak for a time. And so in verse 67 is when he gets his tongue back. The baby's been born. They name him John. And uh, the Bible says in verse 67, And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give, and here's our text verse, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And what we're going to do is use verse 77 to springboard, if you would, to a number of other scriptures on the subject of remission of sins. There, uh, Of course, it's a term that gets used. Many equate this to a mere religious term. Some would say you can purchase remission of sins for a price at a church. This is not true. Uh, you can't re- get your sins remitted with silver and gold. Not, not, not according to God. Uh, someone may tell you that, but that's not a truth. And so the idea of remission of sins, we don't use the word in our daily vocabulary. You, it's a legal term, if you would. It's uh, almost identical with the word pardon, but it's more than just pardon. Uh, if you look, I'm going to give you two definitions. One comes from the Strong's Dictionary, uh, the Strong's Concordance and Dictionary. And remission there means first and foremost freedom. Freedom, or figuratively, it means pardon, deliverance, forgiveness, liberty, remission. So the idea of freedom and liberty because of a pardon is the idea that you have been under uh, a, a condemnation because of a crime. Remission is when your crime is put away and you're now freed from it. And so then uh, Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines it this way, forgiveness, pardon, that is the giving up of the punishment due to a crime such as the remission of sins. Now I want to try to give you an illustration this morning because the message really doesn't mean much if you, if you can't get a hold of this. If I said... Uh, case unto you this morning, I've got good news for you. I got a letter for you in our mailbox yesterday, and it came from our local prosecutor, and he is willing uh, to pardon you for your recent felony. What does that mean to you? Am I confusing you? If I were sincere and I told Kaysen that he's got an offer of pardon from the prosecutor, even better, it's uh, been signed by the governor, you can be pardoned for your felony. Kaysen's going to say, "Mm, wrong address. I don't have a felony at this point. If I said to you, hey, good news, Steve, uh, you get to get off of death row. Steve's going to say, that's not that good a news. I'm not on death row. 
Many people hear the gospel and they say, I don't see why it's such good news. Remission or pardon means nothing if you're not a criminal. Now, in God's court, how many criminals are in this room today? Everyone. Everyone. Now, I'll say this with this condition, unless you've had your sins remitted. I don't like hearing saved people going around and say, well, I'm just a, I'm just a wicked person. If you're saved, qualify that. You're a wicked person by nature, but you're a saint by your new nature. Forget it not. When God remits your sins, your sins are remitted, meaning he is not holding them against you. You have to deal with him as a son and father in fellowship, but never as a criminal and a judge once you've been pardoned. Please don't miss that, misunderstand it. It is necessary, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Speaking to believers, and that context of 1 John 1 is all about fellowship between sons and fathers. has nothing to do with getting a pardon from your judge. That's a one-time thing. You can have your sins remitted, and you'll never have to face God as a, as a judge of wrath again. But many today, as I began to say, when you hear about the remission of sins, they say, well, that's fine, but I, I don't think that I'm in trouble with the judge of heaven. He knows me. I would just stop right there and say, that's the problem. He does know you. That's the problem. He knows us better than we know us. So I don't want us to miss this morning that every human being needs to hear about the remission of sins. Why? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you start looking at God's requirements of mankind, he raised up a nation that he, he brought them out of, out of the dust, basically raised up a nation, the nation of Israel, gave them perfect laws, gave them a perfect living environment, as close as you get to perfect on planet earth, gave them the promise of victory over their enemies, and they lost it all. Today, they're scattered to the four winds of heaven as God begins to gather them again. How could God give them such perfect promises, perfect law, and perfect circumstances, and they end up being an imperfect people? Because men are sinners. And God did that to prove to us the truth that without a Savior, we are, we are doomed. And so this morning, I want to see three things about the remission of sins from the Scripture, and we've just defined it. But I want us to understand, first and foremost, in the text we've just read, that the remission of our sins is a providential plan, meaning our sins being forgiven is not something that man developed. It's something that God planned before the foundations of the world. I cannot fully, I cannot stand here this morning. I'd be a fool if I said I can stand and explain to you, to your satisfaction, the foreknowledge of God. Do any of you be able to do that? I cannot explain to you something I don't have. <laughs> I have limited foreknowledge based on past experiences, right? God's foreknowledge is based on the fact that he's God. God, before he created man, decided to make man with a choice, with a will that he could exercise, and he knew what man would do with that will. He knew that man would sin with that will, and yet God made him that way and planned aforetime to redeem him through the remission of his sins. Meaning God has had a plan to deal with our sin problem before we sinned, you'll find that truth in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21, that he is, this has been his plan before the foundations of the world. Before Jesus entered the womb of a virgin, he was our creator, and he knew in his foreknowledge one day he would come. And he would be born in the manner he was, live a sinless life, and offer that life and sacrifice for our sins. But I just want us to understand that the remission of our sins, it's not, a, it's not something man has developed to make himself feel better. It's not a soothing of the conscience. It is the plan of heaven to deal with man's sin so that God and man could be reconciled to each other. It is sin that separates us from God. We need to be very clear on that. The primary thing that makes us different from Him and alienates us from Him is our disobedience to Him. Sin is very simply defined in 1 John. It says sin is the transgression of the law. God has given law. And that's not just the law of Moses. God has put a law in your conscience. Amen? How many of you know that God put in your conscience that you should not bear false witness against your neighbor? I know that. How many of you knew when you lied about your sibling as a child that you weren't supposed to? Did you know it before your parents told you you weren't supposed to? We were bearing false witness against our neighbor when we were little. I didn't. Who did that? He did. <laughs> right? You're with me this morning. Sin is transgression of the law, 
Every one of us have transgressed God's law. Uh, you, we can go all the way down through the law of the conscience. God gave the law of Moses and he broke them down into ten simple commandments and not having other gods before him and making unto us any graven images. I got news for you. America is full of graven images. Say, no, no, pastor. You're thinking about over there in the Orient. They have them everywhere. Shintoism and oh, they have graven images. No, we do too. They have four wheels on them. Do they not? We have our graven images, what we've built with our own hands and we admire and love more than God. Sometimes they hang on a shelf, but we have our own graven images. We're not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. That's the law. We're not to ever say God's name flippantly or arrogantly or angrily. We're to use His name in a sincere fashion. And if you ever use God's name in an insincere or vain fashion, we've transgressed the law. Right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Some say, good, I'm on good on that one. The Lord says, well, let me say, since I'm the author of the law, let me tell you what it means. I'm paraphrasing. He says, you've heard there was said of them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus said murder is hatred of one's brother without a cause. He defined murder in this way. Thou shalt not kill or murder. We're not supposed to do. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, how many of you understand what the Sabbath day stood for and what it represents today? And are we regarding that by faith in Jesus Christ? I'm just saying this this morning. In our nature, if we want to really start taking God's law and prosecuting that thing at His bench, each and every one of us is a lawbreaker. Honor thy father and thy mother, the Bible tells us. I believe that's the fifth commandment. We're to not covet, meaning longing for something out of dissatisfaction or discontentment, uh, desiring something I don't have because I'm discontented with what I've got or do not have. Covetousness, the Bible says, is idolatry. Uh, we're not to do a number of things that we have. And the point would be this this morning. Those are just the Ten Commandments. If you break it down to two, it's thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. May I say this? If I look at that simple first and foremost commandment, I would love to stand here today and say, you know what, I have attained that one to the full. But my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is still having to teach me how to love my God. And he said, the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Could I have some testimony this morning where we could exonerate each and every one of us that we love the other one more than I love me or as much as I love me? Are we really going to be honest this morning and say, oh, the people around me know I love them like I love me? I'd love to tell you I've arrived. At, there's not a person around here that, that I don't love as much as I love myself. But my Lord and Savior, who perfectly fulfilled the great law and the second one, which is like unto it, I want you to know this. You break the cross down into two things. Jesus Christ went to the cross because He loved the Father and because He loved us. He loved the Father with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength. and Therefore, He would rather die than disobey His Father. And He proved it because He died in obedience to the Father. He loved us as He loved Himself because He would rather see our salvation than His own. And he proved it because he died in our place. And by the way, that's what Christmas is about. It's about him coming to do what we're speaking of now. Why? That we might have the remission of our sins. We have. Listen to me now. You know this is true. In your conscience, the Spirit of God will bear witness. You have failed and I have failed to love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you've only failed to do it once. How many of us have only failed to love God in this manner one time? You know what's sad about Christmas? We fall in love with ourselves all over again and think it's all about our having... A, and I love the holiday, by the way. Don't misunderstand me. But it, it has turned into a time of not loving Savior and loving neighbor. It's turned into a time of loving self and getting more stuff. And I don't want to be redundant. I don't want to... I, I, but my point is this. It often reveals who we really are. But it reveals all fresh and new again who He really is. And the point this morning would be that uh, our Lord and Savior came so that our sins might be remitted because God desires to grant us forgiveness and pardon that we might be restored to Him in fellowship. It's a providential plan, this matter of the remission of our sins. I quoted just a moment ago part of Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack 
And he's going to, the, what he's talking about there is the return of Christ to bring judgment to this earth. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise to some in count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why does God want us to come to repentance? Because therein is remission of sins. Repentance is the hardest thing for mankind to do. God has to be merciful and work that in your life. And I'm not saying He'll make you repent against your will. He will not. He is willing for you to repent, but you have to do so in coordination with Him and in compliance with Him. Repentance is agreeing with God about me, about sin, about Christ, and about coming judgment. If I asked you this morning, and, and you've heard this before, you who are members here, but I, I, want, I want you to ponder this this morning. If I said, when you, you, know, when you stand at heaven's judgment... If you have not received the pardon, if I said today, when you meet God today, the first thing he's going to do is say, depart from me and cast you into into an eternal lake of fire. Would you think, what would you think about a God that would do that with you? What kind of a God would do that to me? What kind of a God, knowing me like he does, wouldn't it say, you're not welcome into my presence. I must cast you out. And there's a place prepared for the devil and his angels because he was a rebel and would not do what I created him to do but tried to overthrow the throne of God. And it's called hell and you're going to have to go there with him. There's a place prepared for he and his angels and those who have believed his lies. And I cannot receive you into my eternal kingdom, into my heavenly home, because you're unfit to be in my presence. Would God be just or unjust to do that to me? You hear me now? I'm convinced on my conduct and on my attitude, he'd be absolutely 100% just. God doing that with me based on how I in my heart, in my life, have responded to Him would be 100% justified. Can I say this this morning with kindness and love, but with clarity, if you've not come to that conclusion that God is justified in sending me into an eternal hell, then there's, there's a need for salvation. The Spirit of God came to do three things in this world. Reprove of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. There are many today who say, I will not accept a God that would send people into hell. What they're saying is, that is an unjust God. What a person is saying at that point is, I am righteous and He is not. But that's not true. He is righteous and I'm not. Can I put it to you this way? If this morning we wanted to open up, and we can't hear because this is earth and we're not God, but if God in in heaven's court were standing before his bench and we are charged with crimes against God, and we said, I don't know what I've done so wrong. And God said, okay, Nevin, we're going to take your 40 years of living on earth, every private secret thought, every private secret attitude toward another human, every envious thought you ever had, every bitter thought you ever had and retained and nurtured. Never we're going to take every thought, every word, every action of your life and play it on the big screen. How many of us would like that to be done this morning? For all to see. I'll just say something. If you're here and you say... Wouldn't bother me. I'll say there's one or two problems. You're either a very, very young child or a very deceived person. All have sinned. You know what chews away at the soul of man? It's a little thing called guilt. We know that God made us. God put that in our being. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. God put it in us to know that he created us and he created us for himself He created us for His glory. He created us to serve Him and honor Him and obey Him and that our blessing is in so doing. And He put a thing in us called a conscience. And the conscience testifies against us when we do wrong. Now, we can sear the conscience until it quits working like it should. The fact is God put that in us. And mankind has developed a lot of things to respond to the guilt in his own conscience. All of man's programs never accomplish what God's providential plan does. 
There's nothing like assurance that your sins against a holy God are gone, forgiven, remitted, never to be brought up again. And by the way, that's the promise of the Bible. So we're looking this morning at the remission of sins as a providential plan of God. God devised this plan in his wisdom. Listen to Luke chapter 1 again, verse 68. Zacharias is testifying. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So Zacharias, as a Jew, goes back to the covenant with David. God had promised to David that the, uh, out of his the root of David, the root of Jesse, would come a redeemer. And he's going to go back to the, the covenant made with David. And then he said, verse 70, As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since when? The world began. He's saying God's always had a plan to do this. And now, at this time, when he's sending John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, into the world, God has visited us to do what he's been planning on doing since the world began, that He, we should be saved from our enemies. Got a question. Who were their enemies? The Romans? The Babylonians? The Assyrians? Got a question. Why were the Jewish people in bondage to the Romans? Because they sinned. Why were they in bondage to the Assyrians? Because they sinned. Why were they in bondage to the Babylonians? Because they sinned. What it's saying is, Jesus, His name means Savior of the people. And what Joseph declared and what the angel said is, you call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. You know what the Holy Spirit of God is saying? Your enemies are your sins. Our culture treats our sins like our pets and our friends. God says sin is our enemy. I love reminding people this. Sin, because it's authored by Satan, is always deceitful. Sin promises pleasure and brings you misery. Misery. It promises you freedom and brings you bondage. It promises you life and it kills you. That's what sin does. Sin is not our friend. Disobedience to God may have pleasure in it for a time, but it is a killer at last. Jesus came and was sent to redeem us from our sins, to give us remission for our sins. That's the entire purpose of His coming that He planned before the world began, John the Baptist, or Zacharias says. So, verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, that would be Satan especially, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to our father Abraham. Uh, verse 74, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. I see a number of things here in God's plan. It is devised by his wisdom, as we've already said. Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Lost fellowship, lost from God through sin, what took place in the garden through Adam, Jesus came to reconcile through coming into this world and taking our place. And we'll say more about that in a moment. Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of times was come, fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. First Peter 1, 18 through 21, I referenced earlier, we won't turn there uh, right now, but the Bible says, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, it was manifest in these times through preaching. Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, was ordained as the Savior of men. Anything or anyone who tries to add to that or take away from that is not from God. He is the way of salvation, the only way, and God in His providential wisdom. I, don't, I wish I had a better word, but God in His wisdom did, planned out our salvation before we ever needed it, meaning our sin didn't take Him by surprise. He had a plan in place already to deal with our sin without over, overtaking our will. Number two, it's not only devised by God's wisdom, it is declared plainly in His Word. Psalm 22 prophetically speaks of the kind of death Jesus would die in our place. Isaiah 53 speaks of the fact that He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 talks about unto us, the son, unto us, a child is born unto us, the son is given, the government shall be upon His shoulders, His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
Uh, so on, Isaiah seven fourteen tells us, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall conceive and bear a son, and so forth, call his name Emmanuel. My point is this, before Jesus was ever born in the printed word, God had foretold that he was coming. This is not... Jesus didn't, didn't, wasn't born, lived an unusual life, and people started following and admiring him. He's not a religious leader. He's not a sect leader. He's not a cult leader. He's the foreordained Savior of mankind. We must get a hold of this. It's the, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Not was the Son of God, is the Son of God, declared through his word. Our salvation and remission of sins as God's plan is designed for his worship. You know what God was in the Garden of Eden before sin entered? He was worshipped. Evening, in the cool of the evening, God would come and walk with Adam in the garden and there was no animosity between man and God. There was no fear of meeting God. There was no terror of, oh no, God's in the garden. But once man disobeyed God, animosity came. Enmity entered. There was fellowship and worship. We were acting in our capacity as the creature, worshiping the Creator as the child, honoring Father as the sheep, following shepherd. That's what we had before sin entered. You know this happens between parents and children in the earthly sense, and I'm certain one of God's purposes for that is so we might have our eyes open to what's wrong between us and God. How many of you who are parents know when your child has done something wrong? Not because they walk up and say, you told me not to eat the cookie, but I did because I didn't like your rule, and it was very yummy, thank you. No, you walk in and they go, right? They know they did something you told them not to do, and they know that their role is to obey you. Child obeys parent. That's in their conscience. Now, they learn very quickly to overcome that and hide it, what happens is, especially as children get older, you realize, man, that child is acting really odd around me. They're acting like I spit in their face or something. I didn't do anything to them. Now, it take, I'm a slow learner. I, I'm not kidding. I, it takes me a while to get a hold of some things. But as a parent, one day it finally clicked with me. Oh, they're not upset about what I did to them. They're upset about what they did that they know about that I don't. That's why they're acting like I'm a tyrant. Not that I couldn't be. But the reason they're acting this way is there's guilt. Now listen, if that's the way we act with a human being that we know we can fool, there's a lot of people you can understand why they want nothing to do with church, why they want nothing to do with the Bible, why they don't want to hear about Jesus Christ, because in their conscience they know. They know behind that is God, and they don't want anything that has anything at all. Even if they perce- It may not have anything to do with God, but if they perceive it has to do with God... I don't want nothing to do it. Sometimes we try to go to people's homes and speak to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And man, before you can get two words out, hello, how are you? I hope you're having it. Get out of here. I'm not interested. Why? Well, I don't know everybody's heart. But nine times out of ten, they associate someone with a black book coming to their door or some literature as having something to do with God. Nine times out of ten, they know that he's not pleased with them and they don't want to hear anything from him. My point is this this morning. Our sin has separated us from God. God has a plan. Why? Because he desires to deal with that animosity. You see, there's a lot of people angry at God this morning. And they'll say something like this. I'm 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 angry at God. I don't understand why he let my mom die. I'm not belittling anybody who's grieving over their mom dying. But how many of you know that everyone's mom is going to die? I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be unkind, I'm not trying to be cruel, and I'm going to be very careful. I'm not belittling that. But the fact is, somebody says, I'm, and I understand people die sooner than we expect, and, but here's often what happens. There's already animosity at God, and when He does something that's difficult or allows something that we knew He could have stopped, it just fuels our animosity at Him even further. It becomes the excuse to vindicate myself for being upset with Him, for being upset with me. I cannot understand why bad things happen to good people. Let me say something. They don't. Bad things don't happen to good people. Because there's none good. Can we not understand that this morning? Without Jesus Christ, we are all criminals. So why do good things happen to bad people is the better question. 
Why am I breathing this morning? Why has God been so good to me to let me have a wife that's godly and loves me and helps me raise children? Why has He blessed us with healthy children? Why does He let us assemble this morning without fear of retribution? Why am I not burning in the flames of hell when God knows what He knows about me? Might I flip the question, why aren't you? Honestly, what does God know about me? Everything. Then why? Why would He be so good to me today to let me hear a message about His mercy one more time to understand how much Jesus Christ loves me that He would suffer for my sins? Why would He even let me have the opportunity? I'll tell you why. Because God is good. It's not something to just get excited about. It's a fact that ought to excite us. This morning, why is America still a nation that has any level of liberty left? Because God is merciful. As many babies as we murder, we ought to have been dropped into the flames of hell long ago. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We can't say that as a nation anymore. I love my country. But the Bible says all the nations that forget God shall be turned into hell. Psalm 9.17 This morning all I'm trying to say is this. God's designed a plan whereby our sins can be remitted and His purpose is that He wants a restored, right relationship with Him. What attitude should each of us have toward our God this morning? I encourage you to pray this way. If you're saved especially, if you're not saved, think about, if you don't know you're born again, why would I not think this way? Lord, help me to trust you according to your faithfulness. You know, if we just know God for who he truly is, we would render to him trust. He's worthy to be trusted. Teach me to love you according to your love for me. Uh, Teach me to fear you according to your power and your holiness. My point is this. Is my attitude appropriate when compared to who God really is? And this morning, I'm either believing God and his true character, or I'm believing lies about God. And this morning, what I want to say to you is God is not angrily sitting up in heaven seeing how many people he can condemn. He is in heaven having planned and purpose to redeem whosoever will. God has provided in such a way that any person who wants his forgiveness may have it. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish. It's not God's desire that one person be cast into hell. It's God's desire that you would have your sins pardoned and be back in fellowship with him in a right relationship of worship. So it's designed for his worship. Titus 2, 11 through 14 tells us that's what the grace of God teaches us. For the grace of God hath appeared to all men. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Uh, the fact that looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior who gave himself for us, who might redeem us from all iniquity, and purifying himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. God design this plan. He has the power to implement the plan of our of our remission and redemption. It's His purpose. He has the power to do so. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. If you look back at our text quickly, God's providential plans devised in His wisdom, declared by His Word, verses 74 through 78. It is designed for His worship because of His power and His His. Uh, glorious purpose. I want you to see this in verse uh, 77, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. Why did God send Jesus into the world? Because of his tender mercy. He looked on his creation and saw our condemned state and he could have withdrawn his plan and said, no, I'm going to give them what they deserve. But instead, he decided to give us mercy. And he sent the way of salvation in the person of his son. And so then, God's plan, finally, it is intended to direct us in our way. Verse 79, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. When you're in darkness, you can't see anything clearly. You can't see anything clearly. You know you're alive. You may not know where you are. If you're in darkness, you can't see where you're going, so you can't see how to get there. Christ came. May I say this, light comes to the mind when the heart is transformed. You'll figure out how to live this life when you know where you're going when this one's done. 
Don't miss what I just said. A lot of people don't know how to live in this life because they're not sure where they're going when this life is over. And you can only know that by faith. You'll not know it by sight. I can't prove to you scientifically that there's a heaven or a hell. I can only prove it to you from the Word of God, which is enough. There is a heaven where Jesus Christ is now. There is a hell where Satan one day will be uh, for a time and then finally cast in the lake of fire. It was not prepared for man. But my point is this this morning. When you get your eternity settled, when you know that you have been reconciled to God, it changes everything. It changes the way you think about your own living. It changes the way you think about your mate. It changes the way you think about church. It changes the way you think about work. It changes the way you think about future. It changes the way you think about your past. Because man is not whole until he's saved. You're you're like a walking dead person until you've been born again. You have not life in you. You're a, a physical body without spiritual life. And so God intends to give us light through the remission of our sins. So it's God's providential plan. Now, we find that the remission of sins is not only God's plan, it's a precious possession. If this morning you know your sins have been pardoned for Jesus Christ's sake, you have something precious. We have this treasure, the Bible says, in earthen vessels. To have your sins pardoned by the God of heaven is worth more than anything you can obtain in this life. You obtain $10 million or $20 million. You're not ever going to have enough to buy God off. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. God will not be bribed over our sins. And here's how bribing often works with God. God, I'll donate my time and my talents and my treasures to the church if you'll overlook my sins. It ain't working that way, friend. That doesn't work with God. You and I can't bargain with God. We can't bribe God. God will only accept one thing as the payment for our sins, and that payment's already been made. The Bible says that Jesus Christ died. He offered up Himself once for all. Anything outside of offering to God faith in Jesus Christ will be rejected at His judgment. Nothing else will be accepted. So this morning, having remission of sins is precious. There's a few reasons why it's so precious. Number one, because of the cost. What did it cost for you and I to have a pardon from God? Now, don't miss me this morning. I want you, I want you to listen This is where if you're saved, it ought to bend your heart low. I, this morning, do not have to worry about what God's going to do with me when I step in His presence. And I don't have to worry for one reason. Somebody else took what I deserved. Now listen, if you can get a hold of what you look like in the sight of Almighty God, and by the way, you have to study the cross of Jesus Christ to get that. If you can see His wounds... And you can see what man did to him and you can see the atrociousness of your sin. You can only see that through the light of God's Word. You'll never see it through natural reasoning. But if you can see yourself the way God sees you, God's mercy will overwhelm you. I wish I had better words to express what I'm trying to say to you this morning. I'm saying this, the cost for me to have my sins forgiven are paid by Christ. Friend, I never want to get over what He did for me. Never. And I hope you don't. Look, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. May I say this morning, I'm so happy to be able to serve and to preach and teach and pastor. Here's why. I get to do that as an expression of gratitude for what He did for me. I'm so pleased today to get to live differently than the rest of the world in a manner that would be pleasing to him and here's why it's an expression of gratitude i don't i don't i could do a whole lot more for the lord but the the things that i do and the things that you do if you're saved we do them not because we're trying to get god to be appeased with us good works do not appease god only the blood of jesus christ can satisfy his justice Nothing more, nothing less. So here's what good works are. They're my way of saying thank you for what you did for me. Let me ask you something. How much is too much to do for the one who laid his life? Can you imagine? Have you ever thought what the Lord Jesus Christ actually had to go through when he died? By the way, he did not become a sinner for us. He never sinned. He became sin for us. You ever study what God thinks about sin? May I ask you something? You think of the worst person you know. In my ministry, 
I, I've counted privilege to be able to be in the ministry. In ministry, I've ministered and preached to pedophiles. I've preached to multiple murderers at this point in my life. Some people say, oh, the lowest of the low. You think about how you think about the most nasty person you know, and you might begin to get a glimpse of what God thinks about sin. Any sin, all sin. God thinks the same thing about a proud look as he does about sodomy. They're the same. They're called abomination to God. Truth? Same? And my point this morning is then to think that Jesus Christ became that for me so that God's justice could be carried out in the judgment that he bore on the cross. Why? So that I can be forgiven so that justice and judgment could be carried out, so God could remain just and be the justifier at the same time. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. The Bible says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Listen closely. And without shedding of blood is no remission. Had Jesus not shed his blood on the cross, you and I could not have forgiveness of sins. We could not. So I'm saying it's a precious possession because of what it costs. Look at Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25. Verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace. Being justified how, by the way? Freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. That's the atoning price, okay? A propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time, not only past but present, His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus." The possession is precious, number one, because of its cost. But as a precious possession, there is a condition on it. Ah, here's the string. What is the condition to having remission of your sins? If Jesus already paid the price, by the way, who did he die for according to the Bible? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's all wrapped up. John 3.16 is used so much because the gospel is wrapped up in that one verse. God so loved the world. That deals with people past and future and present. It deals with male and female and black and white. God so loved the world that whosoever, I don't care how you want to dice it or slice it, whosoever still means whosoever. The Spirit, the bride say, come and let him that hear it say, come and... Uh, let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. But here's the condition. Though the price was high and Jesus paid the cost. We have a tendency as Americans to think if it's free, it's cheap. Don't we? I'll tell you something. My kids are going to get some things free to them this Christmas, but it won't be free to me. Amen? It's my privilege to do that, to show them I love them. It's a way of showing them I care about you. And they'll do the same for each other and other people. And you'll do the same. Free doesn't mean cheap. In fact, the price is so... Some things have to be free because you can't afford them. I've been given some things in my life that I value greatly because I know what it costs the people who gave them to me. They're valuable to me because I couldn't have bought them if I had to. I've been given things that if I emptied my bank account, sold what I had, I still couldn't have bought it. That's in earthly goods. How about eternal life? It's free, but as with any gift, you can't have it if you don't put your faith in the one giving it. You know, a gift is like this. We're sitting at the table the other day, and um, it was Shaylin's birthday, and Jansen had spent a dollar, which is a fair amount of money, to him, buying his sister some pork rinds. <laughs> and when she got the pork rinds, she wanted him to try one. And she held it out, and she said, Here, try one. He said, No. He said, please, try one. He said, no, it's yours. It's not mine. He bought it and paid for it. She said, no, please, try it. I want you to taste it. He said, no, it's yours. It's not mine. And finally, he said, I can't because it's not mine. She says, but I'm offering it. I'm not, I couldn't make this story up. And finally, I said, look, if she's offering it and you want it, it's okay to take it even though it's hers. 
And he finally said, okay. And he took it. Now, I got a question. Salvation, it's paid, it's bought and paid for. Jesus bought the remission of our sins for whosoever will. If you want God to wash your sins away on the authority of his word, he's promised if you'll put your faith in his son, he'll put your sins away and remember them no more. That's what remission is. You'll be free from what you owe God and what he owes you if you put your faith in Christ. And he extends eternal life in his hand as a person would extend water and says, here, I purchased your eternal life with my blood. And you say, no, I can't take it. I can't afford it. And he says, but I did. Here's the deal with the gift. That little pork rind could not become Jansen's until he took it. You with me? She's willing to give it. It was hers at that point. She's willing to offer it, but it wasn't his until he took it. I actually made the statement at the table. She says, well, here, you have to take it. I said, well, oh, if he has to take it, it's not a gift. Right? It's only a gift if it's extended freely and accepted willingly. The Bible says in John 1.12, but as many as received him... To them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Here in Romans 3.25 it says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Do you know how you get the remission of sins? You put faith in what he did for you instead of asking him to put faith in what you do for him. That's remission of sins. He says, I paid for your sins. I took the punishment. I offered the redemption price. You put your faith in the blood that I shed to pay for your sins, and I will take your sins away. That's the promise of God. That's assurance of salvation. You know how I know I'm on my way to heaven today? Because God can't lie. And He said, if I'd trust Him, He'd save me. And He can't lie. It's on His Word. But the condition is you've got to believe Him. You have to take God at His Word. You have to believe Him that you're a sinner short of His glory. You have to believe Him that He died in your place. You have to believe Him that His blood is sufficient to take care of your sin debt. And you have to believe Him that if you call on on Him, He'll save you. He said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know when you'll call on Him? When you believe Him. When you believe this, if I'd call on the Lord Jesus, if I'd say, oh, Jesus saved me, I believe He would do it. That's when you'll do it. Not until then. And when you do, he'll do what he's promised. When you transfer your faith to him, it's not a series of words. It's it's a decision of the heart. I believe you, God. I believe I'm under judgment. I believe I'm condemned. I believe I'm worthy of hell. That's what repentance is. You're not only agreeing that what God has said is true, you're agreeing that he's right in saying it. You're agreeing with God by faith that he's right and that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Numerous times, repentance and remission are mentioned in the same sentence. We'll see it in just a few minutes as we wrap up. But this matter of remission of sins, it's a providential plan. It's a precious possession because of its cost. It's a precious possession and has a condition attached. We must trust in the one who died for us and shed his blood for us. Our condition is faith, plus nothing, minus nothing. And then the consequences. When we receive remission of sins, we receive assurance of salvation. Luke chapter 1, verse 77 Luke 1, Notice the order of this verse. It says to give knowledge of salvation. That's the confidence, the understanding, the knowledge of salvation unto his people. How would God give to his people the knowledge of salvation? By the remission of their sins. You'll be asked, are you saved? Do you have salvation? The only way you know you have salvation, that you're delivered from God's wrath, is to know that your sins have been forgiven. To know that your sins are remitted, that the blood of Jesus Christ has taken care of your sins and that God no longer views you as an enemy but as a son. The knowledge of salvation is by the remission of sins. You know a lot of people think? The remission of my sins is by my knowledge of salvation. No, no, no. Knowledge of salvation is by the remission of sins. You'll have assurance of your salvation when you quit trusting in what you're doing to make up, when you trust, quit trusting what you're doing right to make up for what you're doing wrong. I mean, no disrespect to her as a person. And I feel great grief over what was found later. She wrote, Mother Teresa, as much as a good woman as far as good works are concerned, not good in the sight of God, good in the sight of men, had written in her journal that she had no assurance of where she would spend eternity once she left this life. That was in her journals. Now, if good works could redeem you, that woman was redeemed. 
She did a lot of good. But in her own conscience, she knew it wasn't enough. Now listen, only one thing will give you knowledge of salvation. Remission of sins through faith in His blood. Period. So then, the consequence though, is when we have remission of sins, we have knowledge of salvation. Look if you would at Acts 2.38, a verse that often gets misused and abused. We're almost done. Acts 2.38, we'll come back to this in just a moment. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. It says in verse 37 of Acts 2, Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They had heard about how they had crucified Christ and sinned against God and crucifying God's Son, that they were responsible for His blood. Verse 38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent, meaning quit disagreeing with God, believe Him and take God's side. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the Holy Ghost. What he's saying is, you repent toward God, evidence that through baptism, and you'll have the gift of the Spirit of God, and you know what the Holy Ghost gives you? His Spirit bears witness with our spirit, according to Romans chapter 8, that we are the sons of God. And so then the consequence of remission of sins is the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Upon salvation, we're given His Spirit and thereby the assurance of our salvation. You say, Pastor, I doubt my salvation. Doubt doesn't mean you're not saved, but you need to get that settled. If you're not saved, let Him save you. If you are, cooperate with Him and let the Spirit of God give you that assurance through His Word and through an obedient life. And so then, Romans 3.25, we read earlier that God is just and the justifier. The knowledge of salvation is through the remission of sins. Look very quickly at Hebrews chapter 10, or if you don't want to look there, I'll read that. Verses 15 through 18. The Bible says, Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Look at verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by what? The blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is say his flesh, so on and so forth. He says in verse 22, Let us draw near with a heart, a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know what he's saying? He's saying by remission of your sins, there's no more offering for sins. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to pay for your sins. Your good works cannot be added to it. God won't accept it. So it's the blood of Christ alone and that faith in His blood gives us boldness and assurance to access God's throne because there remaineth no more sacrifice. What else does man need to do to atone for his sins? Nothing but trust Jesus Christ. Nothing. That's all. And then finally, remission of sins, a providential plan of God. It's a precious possession that came at a high cost as a condition, our faith in him, the consequence, knowledge, or assurance of salvation. Number three, remission of sins is to be a public proclamation. If your sins have been forgiven by God, don't, think, don't you think somebody ought to know? You know what baptism is? It is someone testifying, my sins have been remitted through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot disconnect baptism as a token or an evidence of remission of sins. We'll read a few verses uh, about this. Mark chapter 1. I understand in Mark we're reading of John's baptism. At this time, John's baptism, just for a doctrinal standpoint, is not the same as Jesus' baptism because our baptism represents the death, burial, and resurrection. John's baptism was simply a symbol to say, I believe that the Messiah is coming. And I want my sin, I acknowledge I'm a sinner deserving of judgment and in preparation for the king, I'm acknowledging I need forgiveness. I've sinned against my king. And it was baptism for or because of the remission of sins. Not Baptism does not gain you remission of sins. What baptism stands for gives you remission of sins. But don't disconnect. If your sins are remitted, if you're forgiven, you need to be water baptized. That's the Bible. It is, a, it is a picture that my sins have been washed away. I'm a new creature in Christ. And so let's read a couple of verses. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. This is under John's baptism. It, it evidenced there was a connection between repentance and baptism and remission of sins in baptism. We see the same in Acts where we wrote, read just a few moments ago. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. 
John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And some reads that and say baptism of repentance is what gives you remission of sins. Best illustration I've ever heard on this. Do we use the same word for always the same way? We do not. If I said to you, I'm going to take an ibuprofen for my headache, what do I mean? I'm not taking it to get a headache. I'm taking it because I have one. You'll never find in the Bible that baptism is a means of salvation. It's always an evidence. Don't miss what I just said. Peter calls it a figure. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says, The like figure whereunto baptism, not the putting away the filth of the flesh. Meaning, we're not talking about getting your body washed in water. We're talking about what it stands for. The figure of baptism is that our sins have been judged in Christ and therefore they're washed away by our faith in Him and now we're new creatures because our sins have been remitted. And so then, baptism, if, my, if I have, this morning you may say, I'm trusting the Savior. He has forgiven my sins based on His Word and I'm overjoyed by that. Then you know what I need to do? I need to tell the world that God has remitted my sins for Christ's sake by getting baptized. That's the Bible way. By the way, if baptism doesn't symbolize that, that's not a Bible baptism. Let me just say that. Biblical baptism is for the believer, Acts 8.37, and it is a symbol or a picture of the remission of sins. Those under John the Baptist did it by faith, believing the Redeemer is coming. We do it by faith, knowing that He did, and that He's raised from the dead. And so then Luke chapter 3, 3 says the same thing as Mark 1, 4, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. We're going to read it one more time where Peter's preaching. They said, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, meaning... You repent toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Your sins are remitted and be baptized to evidence that. I'll read it again. Acts chapter 2 and then we'll go to 1 Peter 3. I want to read there. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 again. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Uh, by the way, our remission of sins is in by and through his name alone. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now to 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. The Bible says this in verse 20, which sometimes, sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Let me just pause very quickly. If I were writing the Bible, I would have said they were saved from water. Wouldn't you? But that's not what the Bible says. The Spirit of God said they were saved by water. How did water save Noah? What did the water do to Noah's world? It washed it of its sin. The flood of God's judgment washed the world clean of all the wickedness. Did it not? Now, the flood of God's judgment... By the way, why did that water kill everything outside of Noah's life but didn't destroy him? Because he was in the ark. God's provision of salvation. And even as the floods overwhelmed the ark and cleansed the world around it and preserved Noah who is inside of it, even it is with us in Christ Jesus. The floods of God's judgment have been poured on Jesus Christ and when we hide in Him, it purges us of our sins but leaves us alive. Does that make sense? We're, as Noah was saved by water, the waters of God's judgment saved Noah by, by purging and purifying and yet he was saved in that ark Even so, verse 21, the like figure, the like figure. You know what a figure is? It's a symbol, it's a picture, it's a type. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. And he puts in parentheses, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Baptism is a picture of our sins being dealt with in Christ Jesus, being remitted because of him and for his sake. All I'm saying this morning, I'm impressed of the Lord to preach this this morning. If you have had your sins forgiven, but you've not been water baptized, is a testimony of that. No time like the present to obey God and say, I am trusting Christ and I have assurance from his word that my sins are remitted because of Jesus' blood. Baptism is a statement of faith that my sins have been forgiven me for Christ's sake and that God has made me new and I'm going to walk in newness of life. Number two... It's to be a public proclamation. If anything of this valuable should be proclaimed publicly through baptism, but at number two, in calling others to repent. Look at chapter 20, uh, Luke chapter 24. We have the Great Commission given to us in many different forms. By the Great Commission, I mean the command for believers in Jesus Christ to go and tell others 
about Jesus Christ. But here's the way it's worded in Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 47. We back up just a little bit to verse 45. It says in Luke 24, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and what? Remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You know what we're doing in a very literal way this morning, right here, right now? Honoring what Jesus Christ said. Others need to hear that he came so their sins can be remitted. Let me ask you this this morning as we conclude. You're sitting here this morning, and each one of us are made the same in this fashion. We each have a conscience. And this morning, the Spirit of God is either testifying to your conscience, that is what I did for you when you believed my word and put your trust in my Son. And he that through the preaching of the message today is comforting your heart and consoling you that you're ready to meet a holy God who you've offended, but if you've trusted Christ, he has forgiven you. That's the condition of his forgiveness of remission. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So there's a group sitting here this morning in your conscience. The Spirit of God through his word and through his method of preaching is consoling your heart because he's the comforter to you. Now there could be others here this morning that he is convicting your heart or reproving you. Meaning he's convincing you, you know you've transgressed against me. You know that I know your offenses against me, whether in thought, word, or deed. And you know that you've never met my condition of faith in the blood of Jesus Christ to have your sins forgiven. And if you don't put your trust in my son, judgment's coming. Every person in this room is in one of those two classes. Now, someone may be confused somewhere in between. But the truth is, we fit in one of those two places. I am either trusting the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins according to God's word, and the Spirit of God is consoling me with that today, or I'm trusting something or someone else, and I realize I've not met God's terms of trust in His Son. Do you have the assurance this morning of remission of sins? It's not through the church, not through the preacher, and it's not through your own personal performance. It's through faith in His Son and that alone. Amen? Thank mm-hmm. you.